And the reading today is from Acts 23, verses 12 to 35. So, um, and it will be in the Bible, it's on page 1120. The plot to kill Paul. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him here before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it that you want to tell me? He said, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. And he wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias to his excellency, Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to the to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusations had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him at that, that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against this man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers carried, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they left the cavalry, uh, they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. 
Thank you uh, so much, Rena, for reading to us. My name is Morris, and I'm going to help us look at that passage over the next little while. Uh, techie people, you should just know I've lost my little clicker, so you, you can do that. I trust you. Uh, I'm going to pray for us as we look at this bit of Acts together. Lord, we thank you for your control and care. We thank you that you rule over everything and you do so in a way that cares for your people. And we pray that that will give us confidence as we live in your world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, so you may or may not have heard of a thing called the Watergate scandal. Uh, it was uh, a big scandal in American politics in the 70s that the President of the United States, Richard Nixon, had been using the state police, the FBI, to break into the offices of his rivals, to find information about them, to plant bugs, listen to their phone calls. Then it turned out everyone had been bugging him his phone calls too. Everyone was bugging everybody. It was totally crazy. Now, compared to some of actually the crazy things we've seen happen in American politics since then, it seems tame. Uh, but at that time, it was a big thing. No one had ever had a president acting so blatantly illegally before, although that always seems to be a common uh, feature. And he was the first president ever to stand on, president of the US ever to stand on. Now, even if you're into this bit of history and you're interested in that type of thing I've just been talking about, you've probably never heard of this guy. He will appear on the screen. His name is Frank Wills. And he was the security guard who lived in poverty nearly pretty much his whole life. But one night at the Watergate Hotel, he noticed, <coughs> he noticed a lock that had been tampered with. And he told someone. And that was the first domino that led to the most powerful man in the world at the time being brought down. It's one security guard noticing a tampered lock. It's often the way it works, isn't it? Powerful people think they are much more significant and important and unreachable than they actually are. And all their plans are foiled by simple actions of people they don't regard as significant at all. The fact that happens so often in the world is a sign of what we have already read today in Psalm 2. Some of that should come up on the screen. The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. The strong people say to God, We're going to break the chains you put on us, God. But God finds that funny. And he says, listen, my plan to get everyone to worship my son, Jesus, it will happen. And any attempt to stop that, it's laughable. At the end of the psalm, it says, so you do well to kiss the son, to honour the son right now, because you're going to eventually. So I guess that many people here today are Christians and would agree with what I've just said. You think that's something that's true, but it can be hard to believe can't it? When powerful people are against you. Maybe you've had the experience 
of sticking your head above the parapet, doing the right thing, standing up for the truth, and finding that some very powerful people are extremely angry with you. So you see Sam too and you think, well, God might be laughing, but it wasn't very funny for me. If you've ever had that experience, I hope this record from the book of Acts today will encourage you. We're at the part of the book where the first Christian leaders, he's handed the baton of spreading the gospel over to the church, to normal churches like ours, but we're following his journey, learning what type of baton we've been passed. What type of thing are we going to be doing if we do what he does? What life are we being promised? And God has made it clear in verse 11 of chapter 23 that Paul will get to Rome to tell people the gospel soon. So he will get to the centre of the known world to explain the gospel. God will use that to get the message to the whole world as he promised to do. But last week, we saw that people who are part of that can be confident because there is no negative thing that can be said about the gospel that's actually true. There's no negative thing about the gospel. It doesn't exist. And also, he's been getting people ready to play their part in this before they were born. So however you're designed or you're made or you're born or where you're from, you're perfectly designed with God's plans. And there's more encouragement today, although it starts a bit dark, it will get lighter by the end. Here's the first thing that we see. Very angry men. It should come up on the screen. There are many types of anger, aren't there? I remember once uh, back in the days when I used to cycle. Not, I didn't live in Liverpool. Uh, too hilly. It's like everywhere. If you cycle to the city centre, everywhere is then uphill to cycle. So I don't do that anymore. Catch the bus. But back in the days when I used to cycle, where I used to live before, I remember once I was pulling out into the street to cycle home and shouting goodbye to my friend, and someone else was coming along the street on their bike at a very fast pace. And it was raining, and we sort of skidded into each other. No one was hurt, and I was very apologetic. I was like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And he was like, so cross, he couldn't speak. He was like, and eventually he just went, it's slippy. (laughs) So angry he couldn't get his words out. That's one type of anger. There's another type of anger we've had in the last passage that's sort of like a riot. So once when I was a teenager... Uh, I was taken to see a football match, which, if you know me, was totally wasted on me. Uh, we went to see Man City play Spurs, so it was like a proper football match. But as we were leaving, the police accidentally let the two fans at the same gate, and along with me and 30 of my school friends. And our teacher was just like, stand against the wall. And like they were laying into each other. A police van drove into the middle of everybody, and everyone was shouting and screaming. Um, repeated. Uh, that's another type of anger, like a riot. And um, Paul's had that experience in the last passage we saw. British anger, though, tends to be much more, doesn't it, like stony silence plotting your downfall. Isn't that right? Like, I feel like most Sundays I could stand up here and say anything. And no one would interrupt because we're too polite for that but you'd go home and discuss how to get rid of me. It's like a British way of doing it. And that's the type of plot that is emerging in this bit of Acts. There's a group of people uh, who decide enough is enough, the riot has 
hasn't worked. We're going to kill Paul coldly, determinedly decide. And did you notice they're very serious? They're not going to eat anything until they've killed Paul. Did you notice there's lots of them, 40 men, just to kill one person? And they have a very sinister plan. They say, get him brought back from the prison. Pretend we want to interview him again about how he's broken our law and we'll kill him on the way. It's a very line of duty style style plot line if you watch that programme. Like everything always happens when they're moving between prisons. And it's that type of plot. The strangest thing of all about these people is that they're actually breaking their own moral code to do this. They're Jewish people. Very important law is do not murder. Another very important law, do not lie. They're doing both. And yet they've sworn a religious oath. They're really, really convinced that this is the right course of action. Now, in a second, we're going to see that God laughs at the plans people make to stop the gospel going to the world. You know, God says he'll do something, and uh, we say we don't want that to happen, and God laughs at us. It's laughable. So we're going to see that in a second. I will say this, when people do it, for us, it's frightening. It's scary. I mean, we're talking like about religious terrorists here, basically, aren't we? Like fasting, praying, totally convinced they're morally right, absolutely determined to murder someone, even to the point of breaking their own law. It's very sad too. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers say to the Lord, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Now, it's crazy, really. It's a form of insanity to think that we are more powerful than God. But to live in the middle of people who think that is very, very scary for us. Particularly when there are many of them particularly when they are deadly serious about this, particularly when they want to persecute Christians so much that they will abandon their own morality. There's no limits to what they'll do. That is frightening. Now listen, there are undoubtedly Christians who have done stupid and downright evil things in history. I'm sure that's true. But in my experience, in most places, in most times, when Christians are there, they mostly want to do things that are fairly harmless. They want to do things like study the Bible. They do things like build hospitals. They gently and politely love their neighbours. That's what you'll find Christians doing around the world where they are a minority. And yet you will also find in those places there are people with this crazed, immoral desire to get rid of them. Here, the same thing is at work but in less dramatic and violent ways. I have a friend, a good friend, I think, who works in a discipline where he's an academic, so listening and understanding and really getting to grips with other people's point of view, that's an important part of what he believes matters. A little while ago, he posted a political article on Twitter, nothing to do with Christianity, and I replied saying, oh, I don't really agree with this because of this. And he replied publicly on Twitter saying, Given some of the immoral things you believe, I don't know why you think you should have an opinion at all. No doubt he was very serious about that. He's very serious about ruling Christian views out before they begin. No doubt many people agree with him. 
people who have our views and things shouldn't even be listened to. And you see, he was even willing to break his own moral code that discussion should happen and be listened to, to close it down. It's like people have a sort of response to the gospel. Sam too says that's because we understand that uh, people realise if the gospel's true, it means they are not in charge. They do not want to be bound by those chains. But it's not nice to suddenly find yourself on the sharp end of that. And maybe you've experienced it. Even if you've not experienced that directly, we all live in a world where the nations are saying we want to break the chains that come from God actually quite a scary place to be sometimes. I am very aware that as a church, there is no great institution or government or public figure out there in Liverpool who really wants our church to succeed in spreading the gospel. There is no one like that out there. In fact, it's often large institutions, sometimes even large religious institutions that say, disruptive and so powerful people are very serious about stopping it happening the gospel being spread so generally powerful people are angry about the gospel irrationally so it's strange but it's true and of course day to day I'm pretty insulated from that I work with nice Christians as a pastor but I know most of you are not insulated from that and are trying to navigate it every day if you're at our members' meeting on Tuesday, we talked about um, how we're beginning a partnership with the church in Kirby to send some people over to them to help them revitalise their church. Very exciting opportunity. So I was visiting them on Wednesday evening and talking to the five or six people who are left in that church. And one of the ladies was saying in her job, she just works in a normal job, but she said, in my job, I feel like actually as a Christian, I'm constantly walking on eggshells. What can you say? What can't you say? I'm sure lots of you recognise that feeling. And that's because we're all living in a world where powerful people are saying, we don't want God's chains, thank you very much. We're happy to be moral usually, but we'll actually forget normal morality about being pleasant to people if it means getting rid of Jesus. We're very, very tolerant in our society, except for this. <coughs> Well, sometimes people think and say, well, I, um, it was better in the past. You know, this is a terrible state of affairs that we're in in the modern world. Well, it might have been better at some point in the past, but it was not better in the time of the early church in Acts. It was exactly what Paul was experiencing. It's normal. Authentic Christians experience this from the start, feeling the hatred of angry people. Here's the second thing we see should come up on the screen, a very small boy. Paul's nephew hears this story. We don't know how. We know he's actually a child. The translation says young man. But from verse 19, it talks about the commander, the tribune, uh, taking him by the hand and asking him. And that's not what you do for a young man in that society. It's the way you treat a little child. Um, so we know he's a small child. And the small boy hears the story and musters up his courage to go to the barracks 
and tell Paul. Now, I've never really been into the sleeping quarters of soldiers. I know some people in church have done that. I can't imagine it's much of a place for kids. Uh, gradually, the situation gets more intense for the little boy. He's taken by a centurion, someone in charge of 100 soldiers, to the commander who is himself in charge of several thousand soldiers. And he repeats the story, and that means Paul is moved. Listen, I get, God gets, everyone here who wants to live as a Christian gets sometimes powerful, frightening people are against you. And when that happens, sometimes it feels like it's hardly worth doing the right thing for the trouble it will bring on my head. Is it worth it? Like here is this huge edifice of people who are against what we think is right. What is the point of the tiny thing I can do when it will just bring trouble on me? Given everybody, every single media outlet basically gives a terrible impression of Christians, is there any point in me trying to convince this one colleague that we're not like that? Or given that everybody doesn't agree with Christian morality today, is there any point in little old me trying to keep going, living the right way? Or given the people who run our country just seem to have absolute contempt for all of us, basically, is there any point in me just keeping going, loving my neighbour? At this point, people say well-meaning but cheesy and untrue things, like school assembly. If you ever have the pleasure of attending school assemblies, the message is usually something like, hey kids, you can change the world. And I think my children are going to be disappointed if they believe that in. Are you really trying to convince me that small little me can really change the world in the way that I want to? In likelihood, you probably can't. You will probably never find the right lever to pull that makes a huge change in the world. But here's the truth. God is doing something. He is doing something that all the powerful people in the world will not stop. God is laughing that the powerful nations think they can cast off his chains. And the way he does it, this is so the God of the Bible, one of the reasons I think he's so great, is through little people doing in seemingly insignificant things. I think that's why God laughs. This is like God's sense of humour if we're not uh, speaking too irreligiously there. He loves this. He loves, as the Bible says, using the weak to shame the strong. In Tots today, I know because someone in my family is uh, helping to lead it, they're doing the story of David. And I love that story because God could have just got one of the soldiers to kill Goliath. I mean, actually, it turned out it was quite simple to do. If you know that story in the Old Testament, it was like one stone to the forehead, dead. Then they chopped off his head. Anyone could have done that, but God arranged it so that the little boy David did it. God loves bringing proud people down through little insignificant people. Or another story from the Old Testament about a powerful man, a commander of the biggest army in the known world. His name is Naaman. He went to the prophet Elisha, God's prophet, healed of his leprosy. He was desperately ill. He was a powerful man, humble to come to the prophet of a small backwater people. And I love the story 
Elisha takes him to the River Jordan, which is like not an impressive river, and says, wash yourself in there and you'll be clean. And Naaman, the guy, says, why do I have to wash myself in there? We've got loads of really nice rivers where I come from. And Elisha's really just like, I love the way the story reads. Elisha's just like, sort of like, well, fine, don't do it there if you don't want to. It's really up to you. <laughs> you want rid of the leprosy, wash yourself in the river. So we have this great army commander washing himself in this river he disdains, miles from home, of this tiny insignificant people. And God heals him. Even the story of how the gospel has spread throughout the world it tends to happen that religion spread through armies, conquering places, through clever people, taking over universities, through the use of wealth to buy influence. But God brings his kingdom through a homeless man who never wrote anything down. God seems to love doing things that way makes him laugh, uses the weak to shame the strong. These 40 angry men who are going to starve themselves till Paul is dead, they're undone by little boy. Ha, ha, ha. I doubt you've ever heard of Albert McMacken. There's no reason why you would have heard of him. I'm going to come back to him, but I'm going to talk first about someone you probably have heard of, a man called Billy Graham. He was probably the most impactful evangelist, spreader of the gospel of the 20th century. They reckon he preached the gospel in person to 215 million people in his life and countless others through the media. He preached to presidents, he even preached to the late queen. Who knows the ripple effect of Billy Graham in eternity? He made a huge splash on the world stage. Most British people, I guess, over the age of 40, would have heard of Billy Graham. So who was Albert McMacken? He was a farmhand. He was uneducated. But in 1934, he invited his friend, Billy Graham, to an evangelistic meeting. Now, the world was in crisis in 1934 in the midst of economic problems called the Great Depression. Albert McMacken is a farmhand, so he was obviously pretty poor himself. He could have easily thought, oh, what is the point of this invitation with all this crisis going on in the world? That's the way God does this type of thing. I was looking, Googling, saying, who were British politicians in 1934? The people who thought they ruled at the world at the time, the great British Empire. The Home Secretary was a man called John Simon. The Foreign Secretary was a man called John Gilmore. I would doubt any of you here have ever heard of them. The kings of the earth. You've heard of Billy Graham because of Albert McMuckin. God is always doing what he will do through little people just doing what's right. Last thing we see, powerful people serving God. Did you come up on the screen? I love what happens next. The posing, 
The swear, very powerful people, yeah, that's right. The posing, the swearing of an oath, the scariness of the threat of these very determined men. It all seems very intimidating. But I love in verse 23, Paul does get moved with a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen as well, so all in all 400, to go to Caesarea for Paul. I mean, I love that little detail too. It's like the 40 angry men are going to get Paul. You can imagine what they were thinking. They were like, we swore not to eat anything till we kill him. And there he goes in the midst of 400 soldiers and even his own horse. It's like, do you think Paul was like, later losers? (laughs) 40 people starving themselves to death and Paul's just moved. We even get the letter recorded in the Bible from the commander to the governor who is the next one up. Strange to have a bit of government communication recorded in the Bible, isn't it? But that's what's going on. Everyone in the world thinks they're powerful. But we're learning. God will use powerful people to do what he wants to do. Of course, all they think is happening is the prisoners being moved with a government letter. Very important people. They write government letters so other people will do what they say. We know God is having Paul moved so that he can get to Rome. And that is what happens. Verse 35, the governor in Caesarea says, I will hear your case when you get here. So the plan is working from God's point of view. Paul is getting ever closer to the center of power to people who will listen to him. Forces that hate the gospel will line up their big guns. But God, by using a small child to foil their plan, and he shames them by, in the end, making the really powerful people do what he wants. Psalm 2 should come up on the screen again. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. See what God is saying? He's like, I'm laughing at you all because I have already decided that Jesus is the king of everything. You will not do anything, powerful people. That stops that. I was reading a book recently. You should read it if you're a student, a book called Shine Like Stars. It's just a story of testimonies of amazing things students, Christian students have done that have brought change to the world. And I was talking about a country that was in two parts, a Muslim part and a Christian part, and a Muslim military government sort of staged a coup and brought in Muslim rule over the whole country. And so they closed all the universities in the Christian part of the country and said, all you Christian students are going to have to move and be educated in our Islamic universities. So the students (coughs) moved. Some students here lived through uni during closing during the COVID time. So that's a small experience of what it was like for these people. Their universities were just closed overnight and they were sent somewhere else to go into an alien system they didn't know. I think we can't underestimate how terrifying that must have been for them. Plunged into a culture that was angry for them. But what the authorities realized after a little while was this. People keep becoming Christians here. Because what those students did was they found each other in the place they'd be moved 
And they formed little groups that prayed and studied the Bible and did other things that are essentially harmless. And instead of them being educated out of their faith, they brought other people to it. Of course, to a bit of the country that before this had been totally closed to anybody hearing about Jesus. I hope God laughed that day. Must see realize what they must have thought. We've brought the virus, the Christian faith, right into our midst. There was no coordinated plan there. Just little people, unimportant people, doing what was right. Now listen, Christians sometimes do get defeated. I mean, Paul is still under arrest here. There are Christians in history and their enemies do succeed in killing them. That is happening all over the world, even today we've heard in the news this weekend. And every time that happens, it is horrific and terrible. And I'm not minimising that experience at all. Even when that happens, this unstoppable movement grows more and more. The plan to get rid of God is always turned back onto the people who want to get rid of him by God's greater power. Psalm 2 says, God has installed Jesus as king. He is using the plans of godless people and the power of rulers to make sure the world hears about Jesus. That will happen. I would never embarrass anyone, but there are stories of much-loved people in our own church who ended up in prison in their own country because their government was cracking down on political resistance. But they met Christians in prison and became Christians there. Now, if you haven't been through that, you can't imagine the terror of that. I am not minimising it by saying, oh, well, silver linings. I'm just saying we can be confident that everyone is where God wants them to be on his chessboard for him to do what he is going to do. He is using powerful people who think they're just going about their business to achieve what he wants to achieve. Well, with that in mind, I want to finish by calling you back to think about the little boy. The little boy who simply told the truth to powerful people, who achieved what God wanted in a world where people were angry with the gospel. It's easy to think, isn't it, the small, good, right things we do, they just go down the drain, they vanish into the midst of time. No one notices, no one cares. But in fact, that is the way God does what he's doing of getting the gospel to the world. Little unimportant people, with no offence, little unimportant people, every day choosing what's right. I realise there are many in our church who are stuck in situations, powerful people have bound them in, and that situation is out of their control. But it's not out of God's control. And the question is simply to ask, what is the small, right thing to do in the world where it seems like powerful people 